Welcome to Irish Illustrated Insider, brought to you by SeatGeek. I'm Tim Priester with Pete Sampson, and we are here today on February 1st. It's getting warmer here in South Bend. <laughs> Hard to believe, but it's getting warmer here. We have some news to talk about. Lance Taylor, since our last podcast, eight days ago, Lance Taylor has officially become, well, no, not officially. Notre Dame hasn't no. announced it. But we know he is the next running backs coach at Notre Dame. Notre Dame is looking at Eric Kuma, a guy that... I liked when I watched him on film pre-Notre Dame versus Virginia Tech. Uh, bigger wide receiver, not as big as Miles Boykin, but a bigger receiver, scored seven touchdowns. He's looking at Notre Dame, Texas Tech, Penn State. Uh, recent news at Asa Turner. Will sign with uh, Washington next week, and Notre Dame picked up a recruit. They went all the way to Germany to get him. Mike Elston uh, gets a verbal commitment from Alexander Ehrensberger from Dusseldorf, Germany. Good player. We'll talk about him in a little bit. But let's start, Pete, with with Lance Taylor, the running back coach. We had uh, Irish Illustrated had originally put out a, a, a list of four, and then added Lance Taylor to the group, and he ended up being the guy that Notre Dame tabbed. Yeah, I mean, he was when we. T- I think it was on our last podcast. Uh, we were talking about the the pros and cons of Mike Hart, and I felt like Lance Taylor sort of was a little bit better than Hart in like all the main areas that I wanted in terms of F power five experience, Stanford versus IU. Um, you know, Hart was very productive with what uh, he turned out there uh, last year, but uh, also the recruiting territory where, what are your roots um, for Taylor? It's a little bit of NFL the last two years with the Carolina Panthers, but it's also growing up in Alabama. It's playing in Alabama. It's understanding like the culture of SEC country, which like if in case anyone is living under a rock, that's where all the players are. Um, you know, so to be able to go down to Georgia, Atlanta area and recruit, you know, maybe get some guys out of uh, Alabama other than a punter. Um, you know, the, the uh, to me, it's like if you could like com- have a computer generate the background of a running backs coach that Notre Dame would want to hire, you would have Stanford experience with Alabama roots. Uh, and so really Lance Taylor fits that mold. I talked to the high school coach of Bryce Love because um, I just want to get a sense of like him as a recruiter from somebody who's interacted with him. He's you know very professional, uh, sits down, will talk scheme with you as your high school coach, uh, you know, toured the school, met with Bryce Love's teachers to sort of assess fit. I think that's a really important thing. So, um, I, is he is he like the second coming of Alford or Vinny Serrato? Like, no. I mean, I, I, but I think Notre Dame is going from really nothing in the recruiting department at right. running back to to somebody who I think will be good. You know, but that doesn't mean Notre Dame is going to start signing five star backs. If you just start signing consistently four star backs. That would be a huge step well, in the right direction. It also direction. doesn't mean that they'll never fumble again. Yeah, you know, I mean, we, we hold them to, <laughs> as soon as the, as soon as the running back yeah. fumbles, Lance Taylor's not going to be very good anymore, I no. guess. But you know, Nordane feels very good about him, and I think they would have felt good about Mike Hart as well. The difference is some of the things that you pointed out. I mean, the background. I think the NFL background significant. Not only as he recruited in, in SEC country, but kind of SEC slash ACC country. Yeah. He's been in Florida. Certainly recruited in California. Uh, when he was at Stanford, and Nordame likes him, I, th- I think they look at him as more than just a running backs coach. This is a guy that has aspirations to be an offensive coordinator. Mm-hmm. So I think that they feel like um, you know this is not just a guy instructing running backs, but somebody that has a feel for 
uh, offensive play calling, sequencing of plays, things like that. So you can bounce ideas off of them as, as well. And a, and a guy that can recruit more than running backs too. Um, you know, I think that's a it's an understated part of if you're a running backs coach, you have to recruit more than your position. Yeah, you've got to recruit the geographic location you're assigned yeah, to. Yeah, like offensive skill guys are. You should be able to recruit all of them. Right. You know the the running back receivers. Oh, tight we didn't ends, even yeah you know, we didn't even mention stuff. that his background as a running he was he was a running back in high school. Um, and then transitioned to a slot receiver and, and has coached receivers. He was coaching receivers in the NFL. Yeah, I know that uh, talking to people around the Goog, like there's a, it, it sounds like this was not, even though that Chip Long and Lance Taylor have not worked together, they just know each other. You know, they're both from Alabama. Um, so, Similar age. I mean, I thought um, it was, I thought it was interesting that it, it, it would seem to me from the outside that this was a, a, a check in favor of sort of Chip Long getting a lot of input into this hire, um, which I'm not, you know, that's, that was always something I was curious about. Like, does Brian Kelly sort of make a unilateral decision on this or does he sort of rely on his assistants? And it seems like the assistants had at least a little bit. Yeah, of Yeah. I, I, I saw your answer to that. And somebody asked me that on the, or asked us that on the message board. And, and I, you know, I mean, I think generally Chip Long is a, generally is a stay in your lane kind of guy. This is what I do. I'm not going to impose my will on what I want here. But I think in this instance, um, I, I, Lance Taylor fit what he was looking for from an offensive coordinator standpoint that, you know, number one, I think in, you know, age and, and like you said, background and yeah. even family, you know, young kids and stuff. I mean, I think that they, they have a lot in common there, but I think more importantly, they like his background and the, mm-hmm. the, the very nature of it. And, and he and again he, they he brings more than just a running backs coach to the equation. So does this suddenly make as you said? I mean, are they suddenly going to be able to recruit Chris Tyree and get five star running backs and guys like that? That remains to be seen. But we know that he's going to have a more dogged approach on the the recruiting trail, and they needed that. Yeah, I think with uh, Tyree and AJ Henning, like those kinds of guys, Notre Dame Notre Dame should get one at least one of them. Yeah. Um, and but that would be a huge step in the right direction because um, they they just haven't been signed. Like we're going to all see what the running back roster looks like in spring ball, and it's just it's a it's different than I think what the teams that are aspiring to make the playoffs looks like. Right. Uh, I mentioned at the top Eric Kuma six two two seventeen. I think he caught four passes for forty some yards against Notre Dame in, uh, in the Notre Dame Virginia Tech game and a touchdown. Oh, and a touchdown, right? And a touchdown. And I, and I, in in my Thursday thoughts, I listed. I don't have that called up here right now, but just the big plays that he made about against six or seven different teams: twenty-eight yards, thirty-nine yards, forty-seven yards. He made some big plays for them. Hazelton was there. Hazelton was the guy that Notre Dame had real difficulty stopping, or at least keeping the football out of his hands. But Kuma was his running mate, and I, you know, I mean, he's he's still going to visit. Uh, he's going to. He hasn't visited Notre Dame yet. He's going to later this month. Texas Tech and Penn State are in the running too. But Notre Dame would like him. Um, you know, I, I, there's a lot of concern among Notre Dame fans that this will stunt the growth of other receivers, and I do get that to some extent. I do think that it's important that Notre Dame plays more receivers. Now you earn. You have to earn your way onto the football field. Uh, but if you can do what you've done along the defensive line, specifically defensive end, I think you can do that with the receivers too. And I think it's important to do that. You keep them fresh. 
um, and you just give the opposition more to deal with when you have a, a deeper set of wide receivers. Yeah, I mean, if they get Kuma, it's a very like-for-like replacement for Miles Boykin in a lot of ways. Um, and talking to Andy Bitter, who covers Virginia Tech, um, he said that, one, I asked him about, okay, the sort of medical history because I, I understand actually the the pullback from some Notre Dame fans about like well what about Cam Smith and Freddie Cantino I mean those guys were like their bodies were breaking down when they showed up yes. Kuma has no injury history at all it's more of a personality clash with the head coach of Virginia Tech that he's just looking for a fresh start so that's not a concern um, would I would it be I think in an ideal world that Braden Lindsey and Lawrence Keyes and Kevin Austin were were so good that you were like, well, we would be taking a grad transfer as a backup. Well, Keyes and Lindsey have never been on the field, and Austin had a really sort of up and down freshman yeah, season. Yeah, I mean Austin and Ke- Austin had his moments during the season. Obviously, he was in yep. the rotation. Keyes had a really good August. Lindsey struggled. Yeah. So I mean, if you're worried about if you're worried about Lindsey's development being stunted by a guy that caught seven touchdown passes, all right then, so be it. I I, I think if a healthier way to look at that is, well, what about Ian Book's growth? Let, growth. Let's not have that be stunted by a lack of receivers that know what to do or a lack of options in the passing game. So it's, I, do you think like Alabama would? Look at a grad transfer and say, like, well, I, I, I kind of want to, I want to make sure we don't stunt the growth of this freshman who's never played. Well, they took, and they're like, they no, they took Garrett Dieter from South Bend, who, who, who had, played. An, yeah, yeah. I mean, he played, he started. I mean, he, he had an accomplished career before he got to Alabama. Yeah, I mean, if you, if they can help you better the next season, that's the only question to that ask. That is the only question that needs to be answered. And so, like, I guess if if I was Eric Kuma, I, I would be a little bit surprised that. Notre Dame really wanted me, um, ba- just based on the numbers at receiver. But well, he saw, think, but he knows Boykin. Yeah, but left and you got to look at Notre Dame's roster less as what they were as recruits and more of what they are right now. And what they are right now is a bunch of guys who haven't done anything. Right. So. Well, and I do think I do. I mean, I do think it's important that Notre Dame finds ways to get those guys on the field. Now, it's it, first and foremost, it's up to the player to put himself in position to get on the field. Sure. But I think that. You know, there's a lot of it's it's a judgment call in many instances with the coaching staff, and if you can get those guys to run around a little bit and give the opposition not only give the opposition a different look, but give them some playing time to start feeling comfortable, I think it's important that they do that. Asa Turner, uh, you said Nording was going to sign him last week. I did, yeah, and you, I think you you remember like my level of conviction on it. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, no, why not? Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I never really. I, I mean, I think there was. There were times along the way where you felt like he had been swayed, but I, I was never totally convinced. And interestingly enough, it was the two All-Star games that he performed in, and I know some of our readers had concerns that he played so well at safety in the Polynesian Bowl. And he, and I talked about that last week, he played really, really well in the Polynesian Bowl and was non-existent in the All-American game because he was playing outside linebacker. And lo and behold, he said, I was not comfortable Playing there, so that's the right decision for him. Now, whether he will, whether safety long term will be his best position or not, and whether he stays at that position for Washington or not, they sold that to him. And I, I think 
you know, if I were Asa Turner, I would have made the same decision that he made. There, It's really one of the very few examples that come to mind where an all-star game killed Notre Dame um, because he got to play both. He Before the games, he wanted to be a safety, and after the games, he knew he really didn't want to be a linebacker. He hated it. Um he didn't really. He just wasn't effective, and he didn't. He didn't get many opportunities. No, actually. I mean it's like that was the feedback that Notre Dame got was this confirmed my suspicion, my being like I'm Asa Turner here that I do not want to be a linebacker. Right. Um, I did not enjoy it, and even though the way he was playing linebacker at in San Antonio was was different than how he'd be used at Notre Dame, he'd be a rover, it'd be just a completely different skill set. It was such a sour experience for him playing that position that he knew he wanted to play safety. I, I think one. One thing that gets lost uh, in this instance is if you're a DB at Washington, that is like DBU yeah. West Coast right yeah. now. They are pumping out first-round pick after second-round pick after third-round pick um, year after year after year. So if, if you have a chance to go play for Jimmy Lake, who's their DB coach out there, that's I, I wouldn't say it's like coming to Notre Dame to play for Harry Heastan, but it's not really that far yeah. off. So that's uh, I think I think that's a, a factor that I think Notre Dame fans probably overlook because they're not they're not yeah. looking at opposing yeah, I mean, coaching. Staff. Yeah, I liked Asa Turner a lot. I was hoping the Notre Dame could get him. Um, yeah, I love the way he tackles. I mean, he but but there's a completely a, a a greater comfort zone at safety, and so that's a good move for him. Last thing in this segment, Pete. Uh, uh, Alexander Ehrensberger from Germany commits to Notre Dame. I did a film review on him. Uh, I don't know if it's up yet or not, it or but okay. Yeah. Um, I went into, you know, I try, anytime I do these things, I've been doing them for many, many years, I, I try to be as open-minded as I possibly can. I try not to let any preconceived notions, positive or negative, I just look at the film and, and base it upon what I see. And this kid has a chance to be really, really good. He has great length. Somebody on our message board mentioned Jeff Alm. That's a name from way in the past, a defensive end on the 1988 National Championship team. I see the similarities there. Of course, this is 30 years later, and this is so the evolution of man. This kid's a better athlete uh, than Jeff Alm was. Ehrensberger reminds me of the prototypical Stanford stand-up outside linebacker slash defensive end not necessarily today, but maybe from a few years ago when they were churning out those kind of players. He's definitely a defensive end and a, in a, a strong side defensive end in a four-man front, but he's long, he's aggressive, he has, I don't know exactly how much football background that he has, but he has, you know, he's very fundamental in terms of his stance and, get, and, and his get-off and some very natural swim moves and, and very natural in holding the edge and keeping his outside shoulder free. All the kind of things that you're looking for in a strong side defensive end. I really like him. I'm not saying he's a four-star player now, but that that is a, in terms of body and physical skill, that's a four-star prospect. Yeah, it's, I mean, the, the height and the weight um, are really interesting to me. He was about, I talked to his trainer yesterday, uh, Brandon Collier, um, and he said that when I think he started working with him, and sometimes like I think it was about a year ago. And at first he was like he didn't really see it. This wasn't like an automatic. Oh my god, I can't believe what I found. It was like, you know, maybe this is an FCS player. And they worked with him a few more months, and it was like, man, you know, maybe it's a group of five player. And then three months later, it was like, well, he's probably more of a power five player. And then three months after that, it was like, okay, this is a high end power five player. 
Um, you know, Notre, Notre Dame and Michigan, I think, were probably the, the two teams after him the most. Notre Dame more because they offered him Michigan. They didn't. Um, you know, academics are locked up. Yale was very interested in him as well. Um, but it's that it's that motor and that work ethic that Collier mentioned to me is really sets him apart. Michigan signed <coughs> one of Collier's kids last year, and there's a D tackle that's like I think Notre Dame, Penn State, Michigan kind of uh, looking at right now. Um, but he said Aaronsberger is is by far like that work ethic. He drives I think two hours th- a couple times a week just to work with Collier. Um, I asked I I I wonder just sort of like now that he's committed to Notre Dame, does he like go to IMG Academy and, you know, sort of like get all football all the time. And yeah, it's because like he's, he's, not, he's, he's done playing in Germany. Yeah, it's so, not like he has a fall season coming up. Yeah, correct? so he's staying in Dusseldorf, though. Right. Um, so I think what Notre Dame is going to get is going to be very raw um, next summer, but it's also going to be six foot seven and 240 no, I, pounds. No, I, I mean, I, I agree, and you can, you're concerned about the level of competition, that stuff, and then certainly there has to be a rawness to him. But I also see a lot of fundamental things that you're looking for in a defensive end, too. So whether Collier, I know Collier had said that, uh, uh, you know, he's never been around a kid who works as, as hard as him. So he's still, you know, he's six. He's listed as 6'7", 238. So he still has a ton of weight to add to his frame. But if he works as hard as Collier indicates that he does, um, you, you know, can they're going to have mean, a player. If you're Mike Elston, you're just like, Give me six seven two forty and a good work ethic, and then like I'll give you a good defensive yeah, end three years later. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. And and I mean the the prototypical uh, strong side defensive end, but you also see on his film they'll line up line them up inside sometimes, or they did. Mm-hmm. And he knows how to you know the the term get skinny. He knows how to get skinny to get through a a, a double team. He he really has a lot of fundamental skills. Of, of a college defensive end that I did not expect to see when I when I popped on the film. Apparently, his athletic background is more like uh, tennis and soccer. Over that kind of make that makes sense actually. Um, you know, there's um, that's that's rare that you would get that combo. Um, but I think in terms of footwork and flexibility and change of direction, all that all that stuff in Collier just said he just sort of outgrew those sports. Yeah. Now, really, really, really impressive. Um, a nice catch. I, I don't know that Notre Dame is necessarily going to uh, set up residence in in Germany. Looking Germany for, is not the next for other players, but but it does no. <laughs> but it does open a door, and you know Mike Elston's one for one in, in going to Germany. So we'll be back. Segment two: Burning up the boards. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Getting tickets online can be far too complicated. With hundreds of sites and varying levels of reliability, it's hard to know who to trust. That's why SeatGeek is the way to go. SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. By searching multiple ticket sites and grading every ticket based on value, SeatGeek helps you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Make SeatGeek your go-to source for everything from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. Best of all, Irish Illustrated listeners get $10 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code IRISH today. 
That's promo code IRISH for $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. SeatGeek, life's an event. We have the tickets. Irish Illustrated listeners get $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code IRISH today. That's promo code I-R-I-S-H for $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Burning up the board, segment two of Irish Illustrated Insider. We start with a question from Elkire C. With Asa Turner off the board, will they finish with Isaiah Foskey and find a way to get scholarships for Leah Fowle and J.D. Bertrand? Yes. <laughs> I mean, at least on the a, yeah. at least on the Foskey part, and I mean that with Leofau and Bertrand, I guess I would just be really surprised if things didn't shake out in a way that they had, like that Bertrand and Leofau were eighty four and eighty five in the end. Um, you're, you're really, I sort of look at next year's roster. Like let's for, let's just say Erkuma doesn't doesn't show up. Okay. Um, you know whether it be Studsill, McKinley, Robertson, like. Davis, like there are just a lot of guys who are sort of at the crossroads of their career. Vaughn, here. McKinley, Vaughn. yeah, Mabry, yeah, Wardlow, and it's just like, are they going to play? Are they going to stay? Um, and without fail, some of them decide like, I really want to play. I need to leave to play. So all you need, you just the minimum is one because like if you if you count Bertrand as a you know a non scholarship player and Leah Fow is a non scholarship player. They're really at 86 right now. So you just need one guy to say, like, I want to go do something else. Um, but I think people... That are, will happen. Right. I think people are concerned that Leofau and Bertrand, if they don't get a scholarship, they won't stay at Notre Dame. And that's... No, it shouldn't that's be. That's not an issue. That should not be an issue. No. Yeah, because if they were concerned about that, they wouldn't be coming here in exactly. the first place. I mean, that, basically... I guess that's what I want people to understand, yeah. that they understand... The situation where they may not be on scholarship this fall. Yeah, and that's it, is really one of the great stories that um, is complicated to write. And I I tried to do this when I did a, a story on JT JD Bertrand in December. But like Notre Dame basically got a four star linebacker from Georgia and a guy that I think twenty four seven just moved up to a four star. They did, yep. And Leofau without a rock solid scholarship for either of them. Which is really incredible. That's pretty amazing. Um, so you know, full credit to Brian Pulley in Hawaii, Clark Lee down in Atlanta. I mean, they're you know they both sort of were on both of them, but um, that's a really impressive recruiting story because um, that's you're you're able to you're able to guarantee that you're going to be 85, and it's not somebody that you just threw in at the end of the class. It's it's a guy that, in the case of Leofau, Oregon, USC wanted. In the case of Bertrand, that uh, Wisconsin and Florida wanted. Like. That's, Boy, and, that's and, doing really well. And there have been a lot of throw-ins yeah. yes. in, in the last yeah. five or six years at, at the end. So, yeah, that's I think that's what people are worried about, and they they don't need to be worried about it because these two young men understand the situation if it doesn't work out for them this fall. Yeah, and also has zero impact on the 2019 season regardless. You know, I mean, it's like these, <laughs> Very true. these are not guys that right. are like, wow, how is Notre Dame going to be Georgia? Right. Uh, <laughs> this doesn't have anything to do with anything. Very true. Uh, at Arns0715, this is just kind of off topic. If you had to get three yards, what current or former player would you give it to or throw it to? Uh, I think I would probably get. I would give it to Jerome Bettis, right? Um, I would give it to Jerome Bettis. I, I have even, another. I, I might I have even another throw guy. it to Jerome Bettis. <laughs> yeah, that's that's great. Yeah, no, Jerome Bettis definitely would be at the top of the list. I would. This is a little bit before your time. Uh, well, Jerome Bettis was a little bit before yeah. your time, but um, Anthony Johnson, 
from the from the late '80s, fullback, undersized, undersized guy, South Bend Adams High School, uh, three star recruit, was money on third and one, <laughs> third and two. He always found a way, whatever it took. Throwing the ball, I don't think you could go wrong with Michael Floyd. And I would go back to Derek Mays, who high-pointed the football about as well as anybody. Throw it up, and he'll make the catch. Yeah. Those, those are my guys. Those are good good picks. Yep. Uh, let's see. SF Costello. With scholarship numbers being super tight, I still think that a high-level grad transfer is a good goal to have. Specifically focused on defensive linemen where rotating players is a must. Have you heard any rumblings about a running back or a defensive lineman grad transfer. I I have not heard about those two positions. I've, I'm I'm I find it interesting that um, I, I, there's concern about whether the growth of the young receivers will be stunted. But getting a grad transfer defensive lineman, people aren't concerned about Jacob Lacey's growth being stunted. <laughs> um, I mean, and he's, he's been here, here for three weeks, right? And he's he, he's actually here now. And a guy that I think is he's going to play as a freshman. They don't, I mean, have, I, they don't have another choice. Well, they don't. But I mean, I think that he would. I he, that's true. But I think he would have put himself in a position to earn playing time, even if it was a little bit more crowded, because I think he's that good. I I would if there was if you could give me like what position do they need a grad transfer the most? I'd say I would, defensive tackle. I'd say far yes. and away is number one. Like I I think they'll scratch together something fine at, at running back. Receiver, I think they're fine with Arakuma or without Arakuma. Um, but defensive tackle, it's not. I don't think it's quite as urgent as when uh, they're going after Scott Pagano a few years ago. Um, where at that point you're like, all right, they're really gonna have to play Kurt Heinish and and Myron Tungavailoa Mosa, and we didn't know how good those guys yeah. were or were not. Um, and they to, both were pretty effective. But I, to rely on a freshman defensive tackle is just not a. That's not a winning formula uh, for the long haul, uh, but Jacob Lacey is going to have to play a hell of a lot more than Jason Adamalola did last year, uh, and I don't. That's not necessarily a great thing, no matter how good Jacob Lacey. Okay, is. and I guess we're you know I guess I'm assuming here that uh, Hunter Spears will be healthy by the fall, and he may not be. Yeah, I, don't. I, I get I get that, and Jamie and Franklin's definitely not going to be healthy enough this spring. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's, you know, still in a That's, rehab situation. I'm concerned about him I, long No, term. I agree. I, yeah, I agree. You mean because of the injury or just in general? Like, no, the injury. Okay. I mean, when you have your, essentially he <coughs> ruptured his quad. Yeah, like, that's a, that's, that's a the, horrible injury. That's like very rarely do you hear of that ever happening. Um, and I never did see, I tried to find it. I can't tell you, how it happened You can't either. tell how it happens um, on the, the, the but film. But it just, it's a situation that. I, I guess I have concerns that Jamie and Franklin is just not going to be able to come yeah. all the way back from just based on the severity. Of the injury. Yeah. That's no, that's not like somebody at Notre Dame has told me like, hey, he's never going to play again. I'm just that's a big injury for a guy who is like a power player. Certainly, I, I would say like 2019 is going to be a real struggle for him, and that's why like Hunter Spears too. Okay, let's say he is healthy when fall camp starts. Like he after a, a full year of not really being able to go, like. That's you're so far behind in that training. Yeah, that. no doubt. Although you know, I mean, every guy is different. You know, I mean, sure. I have to, and I and I, I think of current Nordian basketball because here you have DJ Harvey who's coming off microfracture surgery, and I don't like him as a player. I don't like the way he plays the game, but physically, he's been okay. And I didn't, mm-hmm. and I, you know, they absolutely needed that. Um, so I think each individual is different. It, it's tougher with a big guy. I get that. And when you're talking about Franklin and Spears. You're talking about big guys. For the record, Darnell Yule 
we're pretty sure that he's moving back to defensive tackle from offensive guard. That's just a body, though, until he makes yeah. a move because he has absolutely not made a move. Um, you know, it's not a great situation, but it, it when it comes down to, you know, do you, do you take Eric Kuma, who you know is a is a proven receiver that can help you, or do you take a marginal defensive tackle grad transfer and then he gets here, and then you know that's where the comparisons should be to Cam Smith and and Freddie Canteen. If there was another Scott Pagano out there, I'd be like, hey, go yeah. for it. But anyway, um, those are super rare. The question was, have we heard about that? And nope. we have not, at, no. at least uh, <laughs> up, up to this point. Uh, at Wilmus 155, what's your recipe for Notre Dame ascending again to playoff status in the next couple of years? Most seem to think next year, that's actually this year, 2019, will be at least a small step back with the loss of some key players on defense. So what's the recipe for Notre Dame continuing what they did in 2018? I, oh man, you look at. I do think they will take a, a step back this year. Um, I think that they will still be good. But um, it was interesting. In my mailbag this week, somebody asked me just sort of like, who are the, the top five players in need of a big spring was the question. And I sort of looked at it as like, well, there's a couple ways to look at that. One is the player who is a younger guy who hasn't done anything that needs to go from a name and a number on the roster to a guy that Notre Dame can look at and say, like, this guy's going to be good. You know, similar to like, the freshman year of Alex Bars didn't play, but by the end of it, the coaches knew like, okay, this guy's this guy's a hit for us. So I mean, to me, that's like Jacobic, Lug, Derek Allen, Flemister, Lindsay, guys who they could have great springs and not do anything in the fall, but the, they can do enough that the coaches know like, all right, 2020, this is a guy that is going to a starting rotation player, or, or in 2019, a guy gets hurt, we can put him in the game uh, and he can play. Now, the other way to look at it is. Guys that can have surprise seasons that then Notre Dame overachieves. So, and those five guys to me, it's like if if in December of next year, if we're spending a talking a lot of time about what a great season, Kevin Austin, Myron Tagovailoa-Mosa, Liam Meikenberg, Asmar Ball, and Cole Komet had, if those are the five guys that are like, wow, what a great year, then I think Notre Dame has a chance to sort of scratch at the playoff door again. Um, I would throw in Jonathan Jones there or, and or some linebacker and right? or Bo Bauer. I mean, yeah. specifically Mike linebacker. Somebody has to emerge there. Yeah. But it's just like they, they need, you need to keep developing and hitting at a, at a un, almost, I don't want to say unreasonable, but like an exemplary rate. You got to have these breakout season after breakout season after breakout season. Um, Cause that's, when you have guys overachieve, that's that's how Notre Dame yeah. is going to get in. You have to, I mean, answer the question, the recipe. The recipe is to continue to to recruit and develop depth, quality talent and depth along the defensive line. Get your offensive line back to where it was pre twenty eighteen. You know they still got to a playoff game with it, despite losing two great offensive linemen to the first round. I think it just, I mean, I. You know, I, I think it starts in the trenches, and that, and as long as Notre Dame is solid there and has that depth on the D line, and can, it can, you know, look. A year ago, now we were saying, okay, defensive end, where are they going to get? At least I was a lot, and and defensive end was an absolute strength for this team, and all of those guys are coming back. Um, you know, you hate to lose your two inside linebackers; they were great. You hate to lose Jerry Tiller; he was an anchor. Um, but you know, is. You you still have you have those defensive ends coming back, and so you know you have a pass rush. 
and that pretty much assures you're going to be a you're going to be a pretty good football team again. Yeah, I mean you need you need like the the Jalen Elliott Alohi Gilman combination. Yeah, so develop, 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 develop. At Dan underscore Brian twenty one. Given the success of Jerry Tillery, should Notre Dame consider recruiting an offensive lineman with his body type and moving him to defensive line? And Pete, the reason we pushed one of the reasons we pushed our podcast back a day was because. Pete was in Arizona talking with Jerry Tillery. Jerry Tillery. Uh, yeah, we had dinner on Wednesday night. I was doing a sort of a draft profile story for him um, for next month. You know, it's, it was interesting talking to Elson and Jerry uh, just sort of about when they came in, and um, it's it's just rare to find like it's just rare to find Jerry Tillery. Um, you know, whether whether you see him as an offensive tackle or a defensive tackle, th- these guys are just hard to find. Um, so you know, should. Should they find six foot five, three hundred pounds, super flexible, high academic kids, and then move them to ta- defensive tackle? Sure, uh, but, or play but, offensive tackle. But the guy that you just described usually is on defense to begin with. Yeah. I don't think that you can. You don't say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna look for offensive linemen. If they're no, that athletic, the right? If you, if they're that athletic, they're already on the defensive line. So I don't. Uh, Dan underscore Brian twenty one. I disagree with the premise of your your question because that's not how it normally works. Jerry, Jerry Tillery happened to be a guy that uh, ascended in high school, especially at offensive tackle, but he always had defensive line capabilities. Yeah, his uh, his high school background, um, his coaching, they were all like his high school coach was a defensive guy. He trained with Pete Jenkins, uh, who's a longtime LSU mm-hmm. sort of defensive line guru. Legend, yeah. Um, so defensive line was sort of always where his head was at. Um, Notre Dame saw him as a potentially elite offensive tackle, and I think that they were probably right. Instead, he'll probably be a second-round pick at defensive tackle, which is also really, really good. Um, but, it, yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying, Tim. Like, Dan sort of got this turned around. This is like to find offensive linemen to move to defensive linemen, it makes about as much sense as finding linebackers and moving them to safety like or, or, taking, right. or taking offensive tackles and moving them to tight end. Like. It's you. You move down a step yeah. in terms of the speed and suddenness by position. I, like a, a, a slow safety, beca- like a slow safety, like Drew Tranquil becomes a really good linebacker. Right. I think Tillery. I mean, Tillery became a very, very good college defensive lineman, which he just he wasn't a good defensive lineman in high school. Apparently, at least not to the level that he was as a as an offensive tackle. Doc Irish. When might we hear about position changes other than Darnell Yule, who seems like an obvious candidate to return to the defensive line? Do you see any other good candidates for position changes? Well, both of us have been hearing uh, a, a couple things. Asmar Bilal is definitely moving to buck linebacker, which is not uh, a surprise. Um, Ovia Gufo, who had a really good, who was named uh, Scout Team Defensive, Scout Team player, defensive of the player of the Year, I don't know if he ever played drop end slash weak side defensive end as a freshman. I don't think he was big he, enough. Probably he probably wasn't. He was working scout team, so there's no real position. But um, that's where he's moving to. So the same position that um, that Dalen Hayes and Julian Oquara play, Justin Adamiola also plays. That's apparently where uh, Agufo will be lining up. Joe Wilkins, who came in as a corner. And played wide receiver as a freshman. They need, you know, they need candidates for that boundary cornerback spot, and we expect him to move back there as well. Yeah, that's um, the the receiver defensive backs. 
I've got a couple of questions that people have asked me about that. Just like, do you think they'll move somebody to replace Julian Love? And it's like, I think those rising sophomore receivers, like I think Notre Dame needs to figure out whether they can be receivers first. Um, and they also have to give DJ Brown and Noah Blake a shot. Oh, absolutely. To get out those there are the play. guys. Those are the guys that you, you need yeah. to choose from. Um, I guess like the thing with, I don't think there's a position change that's coming, unless you want to include Asmar Bilal as a position change, which I sort of really don't. Um, I don't think there's a position change that's going to be similar to, like, Jafar Armstrong last year, um, where a guy moves and you're just like, wow, that really sort of changed the way I looked at Notre Dame's defense or the way I looked at Notre Dame's offense. I think these are more like long-term project position changes opposed to guys that oh, they, they move, and like now this is a really big deal immediately. This is like sort of behind-the-scenes type stuff. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I don't think that that – you're not going to have a Jafar Armstrong slash Avery Davis type changes, I, I don't think, this year. Now, we have – I think it was as recent as last Thursday. We speculated about, okay, well, what are they going to do at boundary corner? And and I think I said, ah, oh, they don't – they wouldn't want to move Troy Pride – because you know his best position is is uh, is field corner, but I think they're going to do that. Yep, um, really I, good chance of that. Well, and it and it it makes sense from the standpoint that you, who are your two best corners right now? And it's probably Pride and and and, uh, and Bracy. Mm-hmm. Bracy definitely can't play boundary corner, at least not at this stage of his physical development. Whereas Pride is going to be a senior. He's improved as a tackler. So I think we both expect to see pride at boundary corner. Uh, Bracey gets the first crack at field corner, probably with D.J. Brown in competition with yeah. him. And it's like, you know, Noah Boykin is kind of one of those really interesting spring stories. Like, okay, can this guy play or not? Because, um, like, all he's got all the potential in the world. Is Troy Pride's going to be gone after next year. Sean Crawford's probably going to be gone after next year. they got to. They got to find that next wave. Right, Vaughn has the shoulder issue. I'm not sure. Notre Dame's four top four cornerbacks going into the spring. Well, I guess you have to include include Crawford as well, although he's pretty he's much out. a nickel. Yeah, yeah. No, I, mean, I, mean, I don't expect he, him to do anything. No, I, he'll, but he'll he'll right he'll he'll be a nickel in the fall. But so the four top corners going into the spring, uh, Bracy and DJ Brown and Pride and, and Noah Boykin. Now there's a lot of inexperience there, <laughs> yes. but that's that's the situation that they're in as they head into the spring. Next up, ND fan one <laughs> RAA. I'm very concerned about the graduation of Justin Yoon. I could see special teams costing the Irish a game or two. How do you guys see it? I'm very concerned too, ND fan one RAA. <laughs> uh, absolutely, no, very concerning. Uh, you know, your choice as a kicker or Jonathan Dorr, who struggled as a kickoff man. Um, not that it's either here nor there with field goal kicking, but he's inexperienced. <laughs> it's a little more complicated. It, yeah, it is. Uh, Harrison Leonard, the walk-on uh, kicker. And I, frankly, I would be still very, I'm very concerned about punter too, because Tyler Newsom was really, really good. I know he, he frustrated people at times, but... He was still really good, and so you have a freshman, Jay Bramlett, who I did not like in the All-Star game. I don't think there's enough power and drive and follow-through there. I'm very concerned about both of those positions. Yeah, it's a real it's a real issue. Um, you know, I, I think that as, as Doors' performance on kickoffs probably should have should inform everything between now and kickoff at Louisville on Labor Day, whatever we see in practice, 
I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but it, it matters a lot less than people want it to matter because Doors issue, once it got out there, was like, holy crap, there are 80,000 people here. Yeah. And there's just no way to recreate that environment. And I don't know. I mean, was he inconsistent in practice, too? I don't know. I, that I've we... heard the answer was no. Like, he was good. Okay. In well, then, then your point is well taken. Yeah. Then, that's, mean... then that's an issue. Dashing Domer. So, to what level have our expert expectations risen? Let's say Notre Dame beats Georgia next season, finishes the regular season 10 and 2, misses the playoffs, and loses a New Year's six day bowl game to finish 10 and 3. Do we now consider that a failure? That that would be right on the cut line for me uh, in terms of like how would do you feel good about that season? Did you not feel good about that season? Because winning at Georgia would be just massive. In um, that point, if you win at Georgia, you've sort of cleared. I think O'Malley and I feel about strongly about this. I think you you probably do a little bit too. Like any season where it's November first and you still have to watch the playoff show to see, like, okay, Notre Dame's four, Notre Dame's six, Notre Dame's two. Right. It's sort of a success unto itself. If you beat Georgia, that would almost take care of itself. Um, yeah, I, w- I would have a hard time saying it's a failure when they've just completed a three-year run of 32 wins. Yeah, and, and like, failure, I wouldn't, I'm substitu- I'm going to substitute failure for disappointment. Um, okay. You know, would would you be disappointed if they beat Georgia, but then... Because to get to three losses, either you're losing to somebody you have no business losing to, and like those teams next year, I think are pretty bad. Um, well, they, there's they at have, there's at Michigan and at Stanford. Yeah, those are good teams. Georgia's obviously really good. USC, who knows? I mean, that could be a total disaster. Um, but like, if you if you just looked at USC, Stanford, Georgia, Michigan, and then you looked at the other eight teams, it's a pretty weak other eight teams next year. Um, there's there's just not a lot of juice. Yeah. Um, so with that in mind, you know, ten and two means if you're splitting USC, Stanford, Georgia, Michigan, I think you okay, would, you, would you. you would yeah okay you ten would, and two regular season you okay. would take that. At some point, you have to win a major bowl game. Um, so I think that's why I think people would be disappointed with that season on January fifth or whatever the day after the that that game would be, um, but. You just got to keep stacking ten win seasons together. Um, so I, I would say it would be it would be a, it would be a disappointment, this, but it would yeah. not be a failure. No, I wouldn't say it's a failure. And when getting back to the question about what will it take for Notre Dame to stay on this path, and I mentioned the, both the lines, it I mean it really Notre Dame got to the national or, or the playoffs last year because they had a quarterback that rose up and could make other than the deep ball, other than the deep ball which he was consistent with, he made every other throw. And took them to a new level offensively. Um, I'm not really sure how that applies to this question, but I wanted to throw that in because I didn't. <laughs> I didn't mention that. Uh, Jay Thunders on a one to ten scale. We're going basketball here real quickly. <laughs> on a one to ten scale, how important is it for Mike Brady to get Notre Dame back to the NCAA tournament in 2019-20? While I acknowledge the injuries and bad luck uh, Irish Irish hoops have suffered lately, the bottom line is in 2018 and 2019. It'll mark the seventh time in 19 years Bray has missed the tournament. And for me, that's a few too many. I think that Notre Dame should be a make-it-two-out-of-three-years tournament team, um, which if you're making it 12 out of 19, it's, you're, that's basically it, right? I mean, you're, uh, you're maybe a, 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 it's a, a pretty... notch below. But I, I guess it's like they are so bad this year. Um, that's, that's, to me, this is a lot different than missing the tournament. Like, they're bad, 
and I realize that they've been competitive a lot of times in losing to other bad teams, uh, and even NC State, who's pretty good. But um, I, I just look at this year's team, and I, you know, maybe they'll get it on a run. I know you've written about the teams they play are, are there to be there's had. There's a chance. There's a chance there. I mean, we're it's February 1, and by the end of the first week in February, they could have beaten one ACC team, Boston College, twice, who is also really bad. Um, but I think they're going to have a t- really tough time Saturday winning that game. I just, I mean, I look at Notre Dame basketball right now. Have They've had bad luck with injuries for sure. Um, I also think the way the roster constructed is was not it was not well done by the coaching staff. Um, so Agreed. It's, I don't, I just don't want to look at it and say like, well, oh, God, if they just if they just had Lex Fluger available or Juwan Durham hadn't sprained his ankle or Elijah Burns had stayed or G.J. Harvey didn't have microfracture surgery, I, I think all if all those things had broken Notre Dame's way, they probably still would have missed the tournament. Um, and it's just like they they need. They need to have next year be a what a, a, a ten and eight ACC make it as a seven eight seed kind yeah. of year. Is that how you see it? Yeah, I do. And I and I, you said tournament two every three years. I would be more like tournament three every four years. Okay. I, I think that that's a that's a reasonable expectation, and that hasn't quite happened. Um, you know, I I. I, I do think that if you had Rex Fluger, you probably instead of one and seven right now, you're at least two and six and maybe three and five, just because there were a couple games there where, you know, the NC State at home that'd be a perfect example. Georgia Tech on the road. Georgia Tech's not very good. That was no. when Notre. I don't know if you saw that game. Notre Dame and Georgia not. Tech. That was two bad basketball teams. Now, <laughs> that was two two bad basketball teams. But yeah, I mean, I agree. You know, the situation that they're in, re- recruiting that should the the construction of the the roster should have been better. Bray hates guys on the bench that are dissatisfied about playing time, and Matt Ryan drove him crazy. That's why Matt Ryan's gone. Matt Ryan eventually wanted to come back. That they could have used next. a shooter. They could have, but they they don't. They, but I get the they personality. Did, yeah, conflict. yeah. They did. They didn't need that. But I just, I mean, I just look. Don't you look at this team and say, like, God, they should be a lot better than this. This is just like a bad. It's yeah. just like they're a bad product. And like for for Notre Dame, whether they were winning the ACC tournament or just squeaking in to the NCAA tournament as like you know five six seed in the league, I always felt like Notre Dame basketball was a really good product. Like they were entertaining to watch. I don't no, find not, them to be they are definitely, watchable at all. No, they are definitely not. Well, their offensive flow is so bad, and then it breaks down, and then TJ Gibbs holds the ball, and then yeah, then you know ducks down like he's going to make make a move to the bucket, and he hasn't beaten anybody off the dribble this it's year. It's just it's it's bad when it's February, and like we're we were talking about this before the podcast about the Duke game. It's like, well, I mean, Prentice Hub he. He, he played play, pretty he had well. A good like, game against well, Duke. He had one good game. Like yeah, that, it's your Notre Dame sort of grasping. Now, to on me, straws. the frustrating the, to me the frustrating part is TJ Gibbs because you can talk about. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can talk about this team being young, but if TJ Gibbs was simply playing to the level that he played last year, now now granted he wasn't in a lead role, although eventually he was mm-hmm. when when Colson and Farrell were injured and he and he played really well. He hasn't. You know when the last time TJ Gibbs shot. Fifty percent in a game, Jacksonville. Jacksonville. Do you know when the Jacksonville game I, was I played? Well, it was a long time ago. 
they really need. To, I mean, didn't they, they needed Gibbs Mooney to be Farrell Coulson in some ways? Like, well, Mooney's you, you, been spectacular. And, yeah, an outside uh, a guy that you can rely on on the block, and a guy you can rely on outside, and they they really only have a guy you can rely on on the block. All if, right. if somebody would last, I mean, if somebody would have said halfway through the ACC season, John Mooney's going to be averaging eighteen points and fourteen rebounds per game, you would have thought. You know, you would have thought, okay, this is this is going to be a pretty good basketball team. Yeah, you thought that'd be Gib- a good thing. Yeah, good. Gibbs hasn't lived up to it, and Harvey just, as we said before, I mean, just does not know how to play with the other four guys on the court. All right, last question. I'm going to let Tim answer it because I've had, I've been dining El Fresco the last three days in Phoenix. Andy Squid twenty three. What does minus fifty actually feel? Well, like? and, and O'Malley's out of the country yes, too, south of the border, Saint Lucia. So yeah, so I'm. Is that how you pronounce it? I, I think it's Saint Lucia. I haven't yeah. been there. Uh, <laughs> it looks nice based what, on the photo he sent. What does minus fifty actually feel like? I don't know that we quite felt minus fifty, but we definitely felt. Well, the high yesterday, the high on Wednesday was minus fifteen. <laughs> so. Um, the the only time I left the house yesterday was to go out and start the cars. And, to make sure. Right. And to let the dog out. And to my dog's credit, he learned how to do his business within 35 to 40 seconds. So he's a <laughs> he's very coachable. He's yes. very coachable. But uh, it was brutal. But it's thawing here in South Bend, and we're going to make it. By Sunday. High 50? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just it's absolutely ridiculous. It's going to be like a 65-degree turnaround in 72 hours. But uh, we survived it, and uh, we, and we got back to the podcast a day later than normal, and we will uh, we will uh, once again. Well, next week, post uh, it'll post be the day, day. It'll be the day after signing day, and it's amazing to me how signing day, how anticlimactic <laughs> it has become back from the the old days when, you know, without social media, people absolutely lived for signing day in February. But uh, well, I mean, think things have changed. That uh, so I'm going to do a story on Sunday. Just it's Monday will be the 10 year anniversary of the day Teo committed. Like think about that signing day, like. Notre Dame, like, owned the college football world for a few yeah. days after that. And just, like, what a huge event that well, was. Well, you know how they, you know how that happened. You know how they got Teo and Zach Martin and Tyler Eifert. You know who deserves the credit for that? Pat Koontz took the credit oh. for it. When, <laughs> okay. When, when him and McCarthy and a bunch of guys were living in the, the house that they called The Kingdom and helped recruit Teo and Eifert and Zach Martin. So Good for them. So uh, Pat Koontz <laughs> recently took credit for the, the, the signing of Manti Teo. All right, that's it for this week. I hope everybody I hope everybody else survived the cold because it's been uh, quite pervasive throughout the United States, but we seem to be on the back end of it. Everybody enjoy the Super Bowl on Sunday, and we'll be back next Thursday for Irish Illustrated Insider. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Irish Illustrated Insider Podcast. If you enjoy our coverage of Notre Dame football, please consider supporting the podcast with a small donation. Go to irishillustrated.com support. Your support will help Irish Illustrated continue to be the leader in coverage of Notre Dame athletics.